2 Timothy 1, 11 to 12, we're in the middle of a discussion that Paul has been having um, about not being ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And then he goes in to talk about what that is, what the gospel is. Uh, and that we see, we looked at last week in verses 9 and 10. But today we pick up and he's talk, talking about the gospel. Paul says, to which I was appointed a preacher an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Amen. This is the Lord's inspired, inerrant, holy, perfect word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this particular portion of your word. Uh, may we understand it clearly, uh, how it, uh, Lord, impacted uh, the people who were living at that time, but then also how it applies to us today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, in verses 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to his spiritual son in the faith, Timothy, who is a pastor uh, in Ephesus, and he's giving him a review of the gospel, reminding him in that review uh, that it's God who saves us and that it's not according to our works, but it's God's purpose, God's grace, his plan, which was from eternity uh, to save us, but it was accomplished by the appearing of Jesus Christ who in his appearing and by his death abolished death and brought eternal life to those who believe. What a wonderful thing the gospel is. It really is good news. And referring to that gospel in verse 11, he says, To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. He mentions three specific things that uh, he was appointed by God uh, to do in his ministry. Uh, think about Paul for a second. He was a persecutor of the church. He was arresting Christians, having them uh, put into prison. Uh, some were killed. He, he, he stood by with approval when Stephen, the first Christian martyr of the church, uh, was stoned to death. And yet God says, I want him to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Uh, God uh, has, he moves in mysterious ways sometimes uh, to choose one who had been an antagonist to Christ and to the gospel uh, and make him into a preacher. Well, uh, Paul certainly was uh, one of the, he was really the most educated of all the apostles. And uh, certainly he was well taught. And he was also set in his ways and his thinking. Paul thought he had the truth. And he was willing to fight for the truth as he understood it. Uh, but, but God, when he got hold of Paul, had to teach him a few things. He had to, re, uh, he had to, to renew his mind. He had to change some things. And Paul's thinking, well, it's very likely that you and I also need to have some of our thinking changed. Uh, and we... Hope that the Bible will be that which changes our thinking. So for Paul, 
If you read uh, the first letter he wrote, the book of Galatians, and now 2 Timothy, the very last letter or epistle that he writes, you find that for Paul, the gospel is everything. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ is first, last, and everything to him. And he was commissioned uh, to be a herald. That's what the word to preach here is, is to herald. Uh, and, uh, and, and so Paul was a herald. He, he, he announced good news, and, and he was not ashamed of this gospel. Uh, in fact, he boasted in the gospel and, 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 and what Christ had done. May I never boast, he said, except in Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he was willing also to suffer for this message. Of the gospel. And note the order in verse 11. He was first a preacher, then an apostle. Yes, an apostle had a unique authority uh, in the early church. And, and yet he doesn't emphasize here his apostolic authority. He emphasizes his desire uh, and his calling to preach, to preach Christ. In verse 12, he said, For this reason I also suffer these things. At the time of the writing of this epistle, he was languishing in a dungeon in Rome, and so uh, he was suffering. Jesus had predicted this for Paul in Acts chapter 9 when, uh, when Paul had uh, met Christ on the road to Damascus, and uh, Jesus communicates to a man named Ananias who is to help Paul. And Jesus told Ananias that Paul is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear the name before my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him, I will show Paul, how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, Paul had made many Christians suffer, uh, but now Paul would face this suffering. Well, the gospel is good news for lost sinners, uh, like many of us were, all of us were at one time. And, but it often stirs up uh, emotions, animosity in those who don't want to hear the message. Why is it that sinners chafe at the message of the gospel? Why do people get upset when you tell them about Jesus? I remember shortly after I was converted and I was speaking to uh, my sister one day after... Uh, you know, I moved back into the area, and and I said, what do you think about Jesus Christ? And she got up in a huff and said, quit trying to, to ram the religion down my throat. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's the way we all tend to react when we don't really want to hear the gospel. And the thing is, the gospel is good news, but it also tells us something about ourselves. It tells us that... We need saving, that we are not pure in heart. We are sinful at heart, and we are guilty before God. We have a bad heart. We have a bad record. That's why we need a Savior, and that's why the gospel is good news. So initially, at least, many of us can testify that we did this ourselves. We're, we're proud, and we seek to defend ourselves. We're not so bad uh, as to need being saved, right? That's, you know, if, you're, if you get saved... Um, you know, that's, yeah, that's for people who don't, you know, that's for really bad people, not for me. Well, people also don't like to be reminded that there's a day of judgment, a day of reckoning with God. 
and that they deserve God's wrath and, and punishment for their sins. Sinners don't like to be exposed. Read the end of John chapter 3 where he talks about those who, uh, you know, who, who walk in the light. They, they come to the light, but others who don't, they don't want to be exposed. So, honestly, before I became a Christian, I just wanted to be left alone, undisturbed, to enjoy my sin. I think that's where most non-Christians are today. And so they don't want to be reminded that they're wrong, and they also don't like it if we don't support them in their sin. Um, but we're also, we have to realize, too, it's a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual war that we're in. And Paul was on the front lines of uh, this battle, teaching the truth of the gospel. And, and certainly the devil is going to do everything he can, everything in his power, to stop the progress, the preaching of the gospel. And he's still trying to do that today. And he uses many different tactics. And the greatest tactic of all is just to keep us quiet. Right? To, to, to keep us silent by threatening us with some kind of harm, some kind of loss, some kind, kind of disturbance of our peaceful life. Right? But what do, you, what do you and I want more? A peaceful life or to live a life that on the day of judgment we would hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. What do we really want in our lives? Well, uh, like Paul, we, we, we need to resist the schemes of the devil and, and be unashamed of the gospel and be willing to suffer. And, and, and so if we're willing to suffer for the gospel, then the devil, you see, doesn't have uh, that much against us anymore. He has nothing he can really do. Now, it was the Jews who were persecuting Paul. Uh, in fact, they wanted to kill him. Uh, there, there were death plots, death threats, and they would gladly have carried them out. Many, of the, many times the Jews would have killed him, but the Lord protected him. All because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, today we don't face uh, so much persecution from, uh, from Jews, from the Jewish people, uh, and even... After a while in the early church, uh, the Jewish persecution subsided and the persecution began to come from the hand of the Roman government. Uh, and later in the early church, they became the main persecutor of the church. And I would say today uh, that persecution and probably whatever nation you want to look at, it, is, comes, it comes from an ever-encroaching, powerful government that cannot tolerate, that will not tolerate those who will not bow before it. It's interesting that people, when they get power, you know how the saying goes, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so when men get power, and largely through government, then uh, they want everyone to do what they say. Now the early Christians were required once a year, uh, especially you know those who were part of the Roman Empire, who lived in that realm, and they were required to, bow, uh, to, to burn a little incense and vow and confess that Caesar is Lord. For, probably for most people, Roman citizens, that was just a, a perfunctory thing, and they just went through the motions. But the Christian could not say Caesar is Lord because they had confessed that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus alone is worthy of absolute Allegiance, and of course, 
governments today are, are, are in essence asking the same thing, asking to give uh, those who are in authority ultimate allegiance. Now, the Bible teaches us to submit to those who are in authority. But, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the ultimate authority in our lives and in really the world. And so we must always, always um, make sure that we uh, hold on to that confession and not deny the Lord. Uh, you know, it, it, it seems to me that the bigger the state, bigger the government becomes, the more allegiance it requires. Again, I'm not saying that government is evil um, because it is actually uh, all authority is given by God. But I'm saying that um, when government de- demands that we bow with absolute allegiance, we have to say God alone is worthy of such devotion and loyalty. You listen to Deuteronomy 5.7, you shall have no other gods before me. We already read that earlier today. And in Matthew 4.10, Jesus is speaking to the devil who's tempting him to bow down and worship him. All right, if it's not the government, the devil will try to get you to worship him. But And some are doing that today. But he says, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So if you confess Jesus Christ like Paul, you have to be ready. You need to be willing to suffer. And in verse 12, he says, for this reason, I suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. And there's no question in Paul's mind he's suffering for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and, and what he's going through is on account of that. So, yes, there's possibility that you and I can bring on some suffering by our own foolish behavior. Right. Sometimes as Christians, we say and do things that aren't exactly in keeping with the gospel. Uh, Unwise behavior. You say, why is everybody always upset with me? Because you're acting uh, in ways or I'm acting in ways that are are not Christ like. And so we have to ask ourselves if that's our if that's our problem. But if we're suffering for the gospel, that's one thing. We should not be ashamed of that. Jesus was not ashamed as the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, to suffer for us. We should not be ashamed to suffer for Him. You know, Jesus could have avoided all the pain, all the rejection, death itself, if He had just gone along with the the ruling class in Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't do that, did He? No, instead He called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. And the Sadducees, a brood of vipers. Even his disciples were getting a little nervous about Jesus. Seems like, you know, people are really upset with you. And he's, you know, didn't seem to phase Jesus, right? Because it was all about the truth. And uh, so today, if, if you want to go along uh, with the unbelief, whether it's through the government or just culture in general, and never challenge it, you're going to have a pretty easy life. But if you want to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to suffer in some way. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. But then he proceeds to give the reason why he's not ashamed. And it's some of the most encouraging words for Christians that you find uh, in his epistles. I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So the Christian faith, you see, consists of certainty, of personal trust, 
of a firm assurance. And it is Paul's firm assurance in what God is going to do for him that enables him to unashamedly suffer for Christ. And that kind of confidence, you see, is what we need today. You say, I can't, you say, I can't suffer for the Lord. I'm just, I'm just too weak. Well, God wants to strengthen you today through this assurance. And so we're going to look at two aspects or components of Paul's assurance, well, at least under two heads. First of all, we find that this assurance consists of knowledge as well as faith. Paul said, for I know whom I have believed. Uh, People today don't even like to use that phrase, I know. No one thinks that they can know anything today. Uh, But the word know here is used to, uh, to get knowledge, to understand or perceive something. And it, it can refer to knowledge that comes by personal experience. In Paul's case, his knowledge of the Lord began when he encountered Jesus, the risen Lord, on the road to Damascus. A bright light shone around him. Acts chapter 9 tells us uh, it, it shone from heaven and he fell. Paul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? So it's interesting that Paul, before he put his faith in Jesus, had to ask a question. He had to gain some knowledge. Who are you, Lord? And that's a question that any person who's considering the Christian faith needs to ask. Who is Jesus Christ? Who do you say? That he is. Now, technically, Paul did not see Jesus because he simply saw that light and seems to have been blinded by it. But he heard, without doubt, he heard clearly the voice of Christ speaking to him. And he responded in faith to what he heard, even calling him Lord. And, of course, we hear Christ speaking to us today through the scriptures and the proclamation of his word. And our faith comes from hearing the word of God, just as it did with Paul. John Gill, the old Baptist uh, preacher uh, from England, writes that a spiritual knowledge of Christ is necessary to faith in him. An unknown Christ cannot be the object of faith. He said, though an unseen Christ, as to bodily sight, uh, may be uh, and is, uh, you know, so we don't have to see Christ to believe in him. Jesus, in fact, you know, as he talked to um, uh, doubting Thomas, you know, he said, blessed are you, you know, you've seen and you believe. But blessed rather are those who have not seen and yet believed. But Paul could say, I know whom I have believed. Can you say that this morning? Notice he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. Now, that's important. It's, it's, we stress that, uh, you know, I think, in this church. To know what you believe. But to know whom we believe is has got to come before all the what, uh, as far as our knowledge. Until we know whom we have believed, and we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot make any progress uh, in the Christian life. So that the knowledge Paul had of Christ... It was intellectual, it was spiritual, and it was personal. You know, there are uh, sometimes people who will say, well, I know Jesus, I know that I'm a Christian. And then you ask them, well, who is Jesus? 
and they stumble. They don't know what to say. There's no knowledge, virtually. And then there's others who who may be able to tell you, you know, chapter and verse, uh, theological uh, definitions about who Jesus is, but they don't really know him by personal experience. Paul's knowledge in this case involved all of the above, and it was a, it was a sure and certain and personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. So to say that I know Christ certainly involves knowing something about him, but it goes beyond that. It takes what we know about him, and, and it becomes personal experience beyond that. So I can say, I know him. I know whom I have believed. I know that He loves me. I know that He gave Himself for me, that He went to the cross, that He had me on His heart, and I know He cleansed me. I know He entered my heart and that He is changing me. And I know that He's in me, that I am also in Him. I'm united to Him. I'm connected to Him. And So do you know Him that way, personally, experientially, by faith? Have you received Him as your Savior and your Lord? Do you know anything of the kindness of Jesus Christ, His patience, with you, the fellowship and communion uh, of a relationship with Him. Are you convinced that you are His and He is yours? Well, God doesn't, you see, want us to wander around in uncertainty. And there are times, yes, that we have doubts. There's no denying that. But James 1.6 says when we pray, we should ask in faith. Uh, as the hymn we sang taught us to do. With no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. So whenever we face doubts about our faith, I believe that God wants to resolve those for us to turn to him to have them resolved. And most of the time, doubts can be dissolved by a, a more thorough study of Scripture. Knowledge and faith go together. They build on each other. And so the, the, the greater our understanding of Christ from Scripture, the, the more we will be able to trust him, to put our faith in him. And, and the more we trust in him, and, and we're able to endure suffering and to serve him in this world. We know that he'll sustain us uh, through whatever it is that we face. Well, do you have a desire, a hunger to know Christ? You know, Paul had that hunger. In Philippians 3, he says... That I may know him. He says, I know him. And, and then in Philippians, he says, that I may know him. In other words, he knows Christ, but he wants to know him better. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Again, the better we know him, the more we'll be assured, the more confidence we'll have in the Christian life. And so, uh, if you want to be a witness for Christ, if you want to be unafraid, unashamed, uh, then build up your faith and your knowledge in Jesus Christ. And and so saving faith in Christ, you see, it brings assurance to our souls because when we receive Christ, when a person receives Christ, and, and really it's a, it's a daily thing as well, uh, we commit, you are committing everything that you are and all that you have to him. And and this is what Paul goes on to describe in the rest of verse 12. So the uh, second part of looking at this verse, some components of assurance. Secondly, we, we see Christ's power and his promise laid out for us. Paul said, I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him uh, until that day. To be persuaded, of course, is just to be fully convinced. 
to have no doubt. And, and what Paul, what is he convinced of? He's convinced that he is able. He's convinced of the power, the ability of Jesus Christ uh, to, to overcome whatever obstacles, whatever odds, whatever weakness was in his own life or whatever, whatever opposition he faced as a preacher. And so his confidence was in the power of Jesus Christ, he knew that all authority had been given to Christ in heaven and on earth. All power had been given to him. He believed and was persuaded of the omnipotence of Jesus Christ. In, in Revelation 19.6, the apostle John heard a great multitude who were saying, I believe they were saying this of Christ, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Jesus Christ is the Lord God omnipotent who came in flesh, and he rose again. He is almighty. Nothing's too hard for him. Whatever he decides to do, no one can stop him. No one can thwart what he does, his purpose. And his purpose towards you and me as Christians is not only to save us, to convert us, to forgive us, but also to to sanctify us, to, to carry us on, to, to bring us to uh, the very end of our salvation, and that is to bring us to heaven, uh, to be with him forever. And so Paul could write in Philippians, again, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And you see in the verse today, in verse 12, he talks about until that day. Uh, it's the same kind of thing. In view of the last day, uh, we can trust in this omnipotent, Savior, God sent His Son to to give us eternal life, and uh, if if He didn't bring us all the way uh, to heaven, uh, it wouldn't be eternal, would it? And uh, He didn't bring us part of the way to abandon us halfway through. No, no, He says, "I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age." These are promises. Just like the promise that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Paul was expressing his confidence not only for what Christ had done for him in the past, that road to Damascus experience, not only for what he was doing in the present, being with him to spread the gospel, but what he was going to do in the future, an unknown future. The future is unknown. It's uncertain to to all of us, but not to the Lord. And, and he says, you know, I know that Jesus will keep what I've committed to him until that day, in that future day. What is it? Uh, well, first of all, think about the word committed. That, that word is, is almost a banking term. It means to de- deposit. Uh, you, you know, to commit a deposit to a bank is to commit your money to that bank for safekeeping. And, uh, you know... We're all familiar with making deposits into a bank. I remember as a child going with my mother to uh, the Bank of Greer, and they didn't even have a drive-up window. You had to walk up to that teller, and you had to give them the check. You had to sign it, and uh, it was all fun. They gave me a sucker and everything as a kid. That's what I was excited about. But um, uh, today we do it differently. We just do it in the comfort of our home, take the picture of the check, if we even get a check. Usually it's, you know, uh, it's everything's electronic today. But... 
Uh, in Paul's day, the money was often kept in, in the temp- a lot of the money was kept in the temple, and that was true in Gentile realms as well, pagan temples in Gentile cities. Uh, Ephesus, for example, was a banking center in the first century, and the bank was the temple of Artemis. It was located right outside the city. It was it was it functioned as a bank for that province of Asia. Huge sums of money were there in that temple under the protection of the goddess. But think of now Paul and his deposit. Uh, he is depositing something far more valuable than gold. And he's depositing it with a God who is far more powerful than some pagan God like Artemis, which is no God at all. And what was it that Paul had deposited with the Lord? He doesn't really say here, and there's differences of opinion about this, but I believe he's simply saying, I've entrusted myself, my soul, with the Lord. All he had and all that he was, he said, I'm entrusting the most valuable thing in life, myself, my soul, into the hands of one person, Jesus Christ. And so your greatest, your most valuable possession, if you didn't already know it, is your soul, your eternal soul that will never die, will live somewhere forever and ever. And um, Mark 8.36, Jesus said, What will it profit a man if, if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? which clearly has the greater value. Uh, So deposit your soul into the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. It will be safe and kept for eternity. And Christ alone is able to keep what we commit to him, our souls, our very lives. And he he would preserve Paul through all his sufferings. He would uphold him and strengthen him, uh, even up to death itself. the Lord would be with him, you know, and Christ would also keep a record of everything that Paul did for Jesus. And uh, he would reward him. And so, you know, by the way, just as an aside, the ESV and other translations, some newer translations translate verse 12 differently. That, for example, it says in the ESV, he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And it's kind of like some people think he's saying, well, you know, Christ is going to guard what he's entrusted to me. But it doesn't seem to be the case here. And again, the older translations as well as the older understandings of, of this verse, look at Paul as, as, as being very personal here. He's describing his relationship. He, he knows that he's about to die and leave this world. And, and he's talking about his ongoing trust in the Lord. So I, I uh, definitely side with the traditional understanding and the way the King, New King James and the King James put it, uh, that he is committing something into the Lord's care who uh, will keep it until the day of his return. So Paul commits his whole life, his, his future and everything in between um, from beginning to end. He commits it to Christ and you and I need to do the same to commit our souls to him for time and for eternity. And we also need to remember, yes, that the body also is important here. Uh, the body is going to be set aside for a while. When we die, the body dies. But we know that on the day of resurrection, our bodies will be glorified. So there is a keeping there that Jesus promises to do. And I think Paul was 
willing, even ready, and even looking forward to death, as he said in in Philippians, you know, to die is gain. He would rather go and be with Christ. But he was willing to die for his faith because he knew two things, that as soon as he died, he would be in the presence of Christ. And secondly, on the day of Christ's return, his body would be resurrected and glorified. So uh, nothing that you offer and give to Jesus Christ will ever be lost. In fact, it will be returned with much interest. So much more than we could ever give to him, he gives to us. So give him your soul. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Give him your days. Give him your time. Give him uh, your plans, your future, your finances. Give him your speech, your words, your feet, your mind. Give it all over to him. Don't hold anything back. It'll be held in safekeeping until that day and returned with interest. You see, on, on that day, we'll, we'll discover that only what's done for Jesus Christ will last. That's it. Everything else will be burned up. Nothing ventured for the Lord. No suffering, no pain, no inconvenience, no shame will ever be wasted it's not in vain, beloved brethren. You know, if we, our labor in the Lord is never in vain. I'm not ashamed of Christ, for I know whom I've believed. I am persuaded that He is able to keep what I have committed unto Him against that day. Are you fully persuaded in Christ? I'm going to ask the elders now if they will come forward as we... Transition to the Lord's table.